Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the podcast that asks all the questions about politics that no other podcast dares to, but mainly because they don't make sense and they're usually irrelevant. This is episode 108, I'm Tian and Duyeb, and this week as Prime Minister and Carbonite Frozen Hieroglyphic Model Theresa May appeals for 1,000 policy ideas ready for the next election, I'm happy to say I have absolutely loads for her so she needn't worry. I mean, for example, how's about a policy to stop pretty much all of her other policies. How about a policy where Health Secretary and sentient silly string Jeremy Hunt is only allowed to speak if it's after he's inhaled helium so we have to take his ideas as seriously as they deserve? How about a policy where every time a member of the Conservative Party uses a crap adjective to distract from a complete lack of ideas on Brexit, someone hits them in the face with a big fish? How about monkey tennis? While this asking for a thousand policy ideas seems like an obvious sign that May has run out of her own, and all of Ed Miliband's old ones, we couldn't actually be further from the truth, as the PM is so full of snappy new concepts and whatever else, that Downing Street has a brand new third model for handling customs post-Brexit. Yeah, woohoo! No longer are we bound to the Customs Partnership, a plan rejected by the EU, and one that made Environmental Secretary and acid-damaged Pez dispenser Michael Gove so livid that he physically 
basically ripped it up, though it was later clarified that it was only a single-page report. Four. No one messes with Gove unless they have more than two sheets of paper. Michael Gove, a man that exudes power, except in a mild breeze when it looks like he might fall over, or if a butterfly flaps its wings on the other side of the planet and Govey gets seasick as a result. I've never been keen on the idea of Michael Gove as Prime Minister, but now I'm starting to wonder if, if he was, would it mean amazing Putin-esque image of him bare-chestedly riding a Shetland pony, or tentatively trying to go fishing in a hooker duck fairstall? If so, I very much hope that he's now number one top choice for the job after May. So, the third option is not a customs partnership, nor a max fac, but something else that we'll find out later in the week, and that the EU have already said is unrealistic. Well, hey, you can say that about Game of Thrones, and look how well that's done, so come on, guys. EU officials said that they read the white paper, and they read cake, as in having it and eating it, which I have to say sounds positive to me, but only because A, I like cake, and because B, having the word cake on there is much better, as I expected that it was going to be called a Brexit white paper, because it was completely and utterly blank. An agreement with the EU has to be reached by October, and with summer recess in the way, that really means MPs have Friday at Checkers, that's the place, not a special elitist game where all game pieces are pawns, to decide which of now three options they should choose for the EU to reject. I really feel like the government should release some sort of time management app, you know, one that helps you work out what time to spend on different things each day, but ultimately their version just says, hey, why don't you piss about for ages, and then just as the deadline approaches, panics and tells you to put any old shit together and hopes no one notices. Love child of Slenderman and the Penguin, Jacob Rees-Mogg, has threatened Theresa May that she must back a hard Brexit or face coup. Now, I don't know what a face coup is, but I reckon that's easier for her to back that, as her face often looks like someone else is in control of it. I'm really not sure what a rebellion led by Jacob Rees-Mogg would look like either, but I'm assuming it's a lot of men in jackets and trilbies smoking pipes while saying harumph a lot until someone actually does something. Meanwhile, spokesperson for Labour leader and grumpy terrier Jeremy Corbyn said that it's not Brexit as an abstract itself that's putting jobs at risk, but the government's shambolic approach to Brexit. Right, so Brexit is an abstract in itself. I guess that may explain why Corbyn's way of dealing with it is to distance himself from it and hope that if he stares at it long enough, a plan might appear. A bunch of key Brexit documents were left on a Eurostar train, which I suspect is actually just a publicity stunt to make us think that they're actually key Brexit documents and not just a lot of knob-doodlings with loads of swear words written out again and again. A retired teacher apparently found them and alerted the Brexit department, which again rings alarm bells, and most teachers I know would have at least gone through and marked the spelling first. And the idea that you can actually get through to anyone at the Brexit department seems incredulous when it's quite obvious they only have a phone line so they've got something to hang their dartboard off of. They're far too busy looking through EU policy so they can claim it was their own, like yesterday when the Conservative Party press office tweeted that they are introducing new rules to protect holidaymakers and customers' money, when what they actually meant to do was praise the EU package directive, which is what they're actually talking about, but they don't want you to know that or you'll see more of what we're likely to be missing in a year or so's time. It's far more likely post-Brexit that the government's way of protecting package holidaymakers is just to mess up the negotiations so hard to the point where UK citizens won't be able to leave the country anymore. Reports published by the Intelligence and Security Committee last week have shown that the UK was involved in torture and rendition. And no, I don't mean this endless, tedious, painful performance around Brexit, but actually before that, in the years following 9-11. It seems MI5 and MI6 didn't carry out any physical torture of detainees, but they were involved in hundreds of cases where suspects were mistreated by US operatives. Former Foreign Secretary under Tony Blair and man who always looks like a small horse trying to go undetected as a human, Jack Straw, is going to face questions on just how 
how much he knew. Which is funny, because in 2005, he said there was no truth in claims the UK has been involved in rendition, proving either he wasn't deemed intelligent enough to know about it, or he's been barefaced lying for years. Still, if he refuses to answer any questions, the committee can at least still have fun finding ways getting him to talk. UKIP leader and puppet made entirely from testicular skin, Gerard Batten, has invited alt-right social media activists to join the dying embers of their party in the hope that it'll boost support amongst young people. Yeah, because nothing says UKIP like hoping garbage trolls will help put out your trash fire. These social media activists include Mark Meechan, a.k.a. Count Dankula, a man most well-known for being fined £800 for posting videos of his pug doing a Nazi salute like a weird audition for the Kraftwaffe. He said it was just a joke, but, you know, obviously one that wasn't funny and was just anti-Semitic and racist. An alt-joke, perhaps. Ultimately, UKIP may as well have heard the Twitter fail well, a sexbot account and that fucking word paperclip for a similar level of intelligent discourse. And if that wasn't weird enough political news, actor and Pixar emotion for Avinit, Danny Dyer, was praised for his appearance on ITV show Good Evening Britain for calling former Prime Minister and withered sausage David Cameron a twat after saying that he should be held account for Brexit. Yeah, he said held account. Which, look, if you knew anything about David Cameron, you'd know he only holds accounts offshore. And lastly, it's been revealed that British defence experts spent 50 years trying to catch a UFO, believing that they could use it to make superweapons, something they assumed China and Russia were already doing. So that means from 1947 to 1997, government powers were being used to chase aliens that didn't exist. And then from 2001 to 2007, they were being used to chase WMDs that didn't exist. And now from 2016 onwards, all of its resources are being used to chase rainbows. Well, except for the DUP, as they don't really like that sort of thing. How do? Melting? Are you slightly melting? Evaporating a little bit? And yes, I'm aware that for anyone listening to this in almost any other part of the world, the heatwave in the UK uh, that we're currently experiencing is doesn't seem that hot to you. But what you have to realise is that 30 degrees Celsius here, or 86 degrees Fahrenheit, for those of you that do that weird thing, is the sort of 30 degrees, or 86 degrees, that doesn't just waft about making the air all pleasantly warm, but it swoops in and it sticks to your body like an aggressive shower curtain, meaning that all public transport becomes some sort of portable sauna, except you're sharing it with loads of people that you've never wanted to be that intimate with, all sweating away. I mean, by the end of just a short walk in London at the moment, it feels like I've purposefully poured liquid gelatin inside my pants. What I'm saying is, I'm not surviving very well. It's very warm. I have a fan on full blast, but he's getting pretty tired, and he keeps saying he doesn't like my work that much, so uh, there you go. But, um, yeah, this week's show was hard work, and by hard work, I mean, I didn't want to be sitting in my little hot room writing a with my hot headphones on. I wanted to be eating ice creams and having a snooze while my daughter tried to eat stuff that she found on the floor. But here we are. I've done it. I've done it for you, listeners. Just for you. And that is the sort of motivation I need, knowing that you're all out there also finding your headphones horribly uncomfortable as they essentially just help build up sweat inside your ears like a tiny swimming pool for head lice. And that is the sort of thing that gets me through. What am I talking about? I have no idea. It is the heat, I tell you. It is the heat it is so hot um, but thank you thank you for listening and thank you this week to Andrew, Rory and Steve for doing a monthly donation at the hugely unrewarding Patreon this week um, I know it's unrewarding but you're so good for doing it if you'd like to donate regularly even just so maybe I could buy two fans and then procrastinate even more on podcast day by floating little bits of paper in between them both and pretending I have magic powers then you too can go to the hugely unrewarding Patreon at patreon.com forward slash parpolebro oh it's Patreon isn't it I've said Patreon again Patreon, Patreon. Anyway, if enough of you join up, 
I may start adding stuff on there and make it less unrewarding. I don't know what, but I'll let that possibility hover there like an old train ticket between two fans. Um, maybe you can suggest stuff. Uh, I know I'm asking you to suggest things again. You're not big fans of that, but hey... Do it if, if you would like more things. Let me know what more things you would like. Um, thank you also to Anna and Una, um, who both donated to the Kofi account. Not together, which is a shame because they sound like a brilliant folk band. Um, but uh, if you don't want to do a monthly thing, you can donate to the Kofi at uh, ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro. And links to both of those are on the website at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk as well, um, along with all of the transcribings of the shows and tons of other stuff. Go have a look at it. There's good pictures as well. It's great. It's very lovely. Um, I was trying to think of a good way to say that you could donate whatever you think this show is worth per episode. I thought that might be a good thing of kind of going, hey, if you think each episode's worth 20p, then why don't you donate a lot of 20... I mean, there's a lot of episodes. It'd get expensive. I also realised that asking you to do that could get really disheartening if some of you just started sending me incremental payments of, like, 1p or insisted on maybe just posting me dead things you found in the road. So, look, it's up to you. You donate what you want to, what you think it's worth. Um, And, of course, if you can't donate or you just don't want to because you think I smell and today you would be right then please do review the show like Rebecca did. Thank you Rebecca. She reviewed it on CastBox. Yeah, a new one. What is CastBox? What is inside? Open it. Open it. Open the CastBox. Oh, it's a podcast and not the entire cast of Degrassi High. What a disappointment. Sorry, it's the heat. It really is the heat today. So, all I'm saying is uh, I found out you can now review on CastBox as well. I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, And you can review on the iTunes and the Stitches and the Podbeans and lots of other things and I know every week I ask you to do this and every week you probably think oh I'll skip this super dull bit but the way that say iTunes works is if there's a high influx of reviews they think oh that's obviously a popular show people do like it we'll put it on our front page and then you get loads more listens and then you can sort of become a kind of pod legend and you just like become a legendary pod person who can afford air conditioning and get your own cast box and everything so you know please do that it would be lovely and helpful. Um, the only other things this week, uh, admin-wise, is that no one, no one at all, sent any ideas for a tagline for the podcast. Um, I mean, much like May, I'd love to appeal for 1,000 new taglines. But look, even if it's just an old one you really like, uh, then please let me know. You know the tagline bit, right? You know what I'm talking about. The bit where I say at the top of the show, welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, a podcast that, and then I say something after that. It's that bit. That's the tagline. And look, I know there's like the World Cup on, and it's warm outside, and you've all got lives and jobs, and families and 101 better things to do but if you've got any ideas for how best to sum this show up in a line please send it over um also it was made aware to me by uh, a listener recently that all subjects on the show are pretty bleak at the moment when the sun is shining outside uh, and all of this in your ears is a bit miserable um and uh, the podcast had the same issue last year of course and well every episode uh, and that is partly because i find it best to poke fun at the worst stuff but also because things are bleak i mean like i said not outside they aren't uh, or I'd have been able to write properly today. I mean, really, if it was bleak, it would have been a lot easier for me. But in general, they're bleak. So do you need more optimism in this show? That's what I'm asking. If so, let me know. And maybe uh, if you can tweet or Facebook stories or suggestions to me that are a bit more positive, I will happily add in some sort of happy time section to the podcast um, or not. Uh, Similarly, I noticed that there's not been much fun poking at Labour, Lib Dems, Greens or any of them other parties in the last few eps. And that's because uh, there's not much to say about them. While the Conservatives are in power, and massively dicking on everything. But I just want to let any newer listeners know that I am happy to do jokes about everyone, just that they're not really doing very much right now. So, you know, if you're involved in those parties and you want to hear more jokes about them, maybe drop them a line to do something somehow even more catastrophic than Brexit. I'm sure they can work it out. 
Thank you. Okay, so on this week's show, I am talking to Fred Carver at the United Nations Association UK, all about the cheery, upbeat subject of Yemen. Do you see what, do you see what I mean about the happy time stuff? Yeah, exactly. And of course, uh, there is Brexit, endless endless Brexit. I would love to talk about something else but even all the NHS stories this week are about you guessed it, Brexit. Do you know most other countries couldn't give a shit about it? I mean at the EU summit last week it was barely discussed but here we are in the UK the world's crappiest heatwave and Brexit looming over everything like um, uh, like a giant weaver with really big looms. Oh it's the heat. It's really it's definitely the heat today. Oh, the heat. Oh and there's also some stuff on Heathrow as well but you know due to delays I suppose we should start with the fucking Brexit. Brexit Okay, so I suppose I was slightly dishonest uh, when a second ago I said this was uh, all about Brexit. As actually, there's not that much Brexit news outside of the standard. You know, let's do a speedrun. Hardline Brexiteers saying we need to leave so hard that someone breaks an ankle or they'll oust May. Theresa May saying she's not going anywhere but forgetting to add fast at the end of that. Michael Gove ripping up a single page and probably putting his arm out and having to sit down for a while. Boris Johnson backing Jacob Rees-Mogg because these cartoon characters have to stick together otherwise Toontown will be in danger. Jeremy Corbyn saying he doesn't want a hard Brexit but then laying out the Brexit that he wants with all the things that you'd have in a hard Brexit. Labour supporters saying they don't want Labour to support Brexit or they won't support Labour. Non-Labour supporters saying that they want Brexit or they won't support Labour. Neither of those groups being enough to help Labour win in a future election. And the EU saying hang on, all of this is balls. We don't like any of your ideas. You really don't have much time. Why are you being such mega bellends about it? I mean, that's it really. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but that is basically it. we got six weeks till the government unveil their Brexit white paper and hopefully Michael Gove won't leap in and try and rip it apart as a show of strength. Only three months then till a final deal is sorted out with the EU in October and with all of that in mind the government are meeting on Friday to finally work things out between themselves because they haven't even managed to do that yet. I mean this isn't even last minute swatting up, this is fully preparing to fail and considering not even going to the exam so you can get drunk on vodka in the park instead while snogging that kid whose breath smells of sardines. Today, BBC politics reporter Laura Kunzberg tweeted, and I'm just going to read this verbatim, as I can't write stuff this good. I really wish I could. Here's her tweet. I hear that David Davis went in to see the PM this morning after not knowing about Number 10's new plan, but left the meeting still not having discussed the new plan. Incredible. Just incredible. So, yeah, that's where we are. And what is the new plan? No idea. But the EU officials who've already seen drafts of it have said it's unrealistic and all cherry-picking and cake-eating and all those terms that put a really bad name to genuinely fun scoffing activities. That's what Brexit's done. Brexit's even ruined eating cake and having cherries. I really hope after Brexit we remove the GR from Great Britain just to reflect that. Some sources reckon May will abandon all plans and ask for an extra year's transition. You know, so then we can remain in EU limbo for, like, however long. And it's either that sort of in-out, in-out classic British hokey-cokey deal or a no-deal. And don't forget that no-deal is better than the bad deal, except it isn't, even when May has made the bad deal. So, that's that. But last week was also the EU summit, an event that sounds a lot like it's someone from Yorkshire forgetting something about the EU. But actually, it's a pretty big meeting of the European Council with all the reps up in the his house. The main discussion was the migration crisis because Italy's new government have demanded action. And that's partly because their country is often the first port of call for refugees, asylum seekers and economic migrants from Africa and the Middle East. And their struggling economy is being hit hard by such a large increase in population. But it's also partly because their new batshit populist coalition government are hella racist and really scary. 
The talks went on for ages due to the views of leaders such as uh, Germany's Angela Merkel, who are sympathetic to people escaping a war zone, and the far-right Viktor Orban in Hungary, who are very happy to let people drown because he clearly can't be bothered to go to the museums in his own country's capital. A deal was eventually made, though, for controlled migrant processing centres within Europe, and those sound quite a lot like Soylent Green factories, but those would supposedly distinguish between those seeking asylum and irregular migrants who would then be sent back. Now, I'm not exactly sure what an irregular migrant is. Is that someone who's crossed the border and looks like a Picasso painting? Is it someone who lets very similarly patterned numbers of people arrive before and after they do while they interrupt it in the middle? Who knows? But this is the problem. The migration crisis, or as the International Organisation for Migration and the UN Refugee Council have rightly called it, a humanitarian crisis, looks like it could be the catalyst that starts to destroy the EU if the countries that are taking in most people have to deal with it by themselves. And in the case of Italy and Greece with fragile economies. The Dublin regulation requires asylum seekers to be registered in the first country they arrive in, which makes quite a lot of sense, really. And with Syria, Yemen and other wars, that means those countries closest to North Africa and the Middle East are taking in way more than wealthier West European countries. Because, let's face it, if you manage to escape a war, no-one's expecting you to row all the way round the Channel until you get to Sweden. Nightmare. But the plan the EU have agreed on is so vague that I'm not sure how it will help. I mean, there's no blueprint on how these processing centres will work. There's an assumption there'll be migration centres outside Europe in Northern Africa, but none of the countries that they'd be in have agreed to that yet. I mean, Libya is one country that would likely be involved, but at the moment, Libyan deportation centres are so full of abuse, with lots of migrants being sold at slave auctions. But hey, who am I to criticise agreements made on vague plans for global crisis? Here in the UK, we have a government who can't even agree on a vague plan for a national crisis, and while the rest of the world is trying to find a solution to masses of displaced people fleeing horrific situations, Theresa May and her cabinet will be in a fancy country house watching Michael Gove do dumbbell lifts with matches. Great Britain there. Great Britain. Yemen. The way everyone in my sixth form used to respond to everything. But also, and far more importantly, a country in the Middle East that is currently experiencing the worst humanitarian crisis of 2018. And considering just how many contenders it has up against it this year, that's a pretty depressing title to hold. Three quarters of the population, approximately 22 million people, are in need of aid and security, with nearly half of Yemeni children aged under five chronically malnourished. So, I hear you cry, and yes, crying is an absolutely appropriate response. Why isn't this all over the news? I mean, where's Bob Geldof and a bunch of musicians only dads like to patronise them about Christmas? Why aren't Parliament doing their usual arguing about if they can fix this by just bombing everyone? Well, Yemen is often referred to as the Forgotten War because, well, sadly, people seem to have done. And maybe that's because Saudi Arabia is involved. You know, the country that's the Johnny Depp of the political world, favourable with those in charge, despite all of us being very aware of what they're up to. The UK are the lead country for Yemen on the UN Security Council, yet what we mostly seem to be doing is selling weapons to Saudi Arabia to use in the war and then supplying aid to Yemen afterwards in an effort that should be known in the history books as Operation Moot. This week, I tried not to let this podcast be one of the outlets that forgets Yemen, and so I spoke to Fred Carver at the United Nations Association UK, the leading independent policy authority on the UN in the UK. The UNAUK work with the all-parliamentary group on the UN uh, in helping them support the aims and ideals of the UN, which right now means a much bigger focus on Yemen than they have been giving. 
I asked Fred all about why this war is continuing, why the UK aren't doing enough, and also a few questions on other campaigns that the UNA UK are working on. And I should say this chat happened just before the current pause in fighting in Yemen, and I should say that's also a pause, not a ceasefire, but apparently it may provide a tiny bit of hope towards UN intervention. Um, I found this chat with Fred hugely useful and interesting, and while it is yet again another interview that is at times mostly bleak, there are some things that you, the listener, can get involved in at the end that will hopefully inspire you a little bit. Here is Fred. So I want to ask about uh, the Yemeni civil war. I don't know a lot about it. I understand that it's not really a civil war and a lot of outside factions are involved. Can you give me some background on how it started, who's it involved um, and why, why it's continuing? Um, I mean, it's, it's frankly a very long story. Uh, like many uh, of, the, um, of, of, of the places in the region, there's obviously a, a link to, to Britain and the British Empire. The, uh, my dad actually fought in Yemen in the 1970s. I think just skipping ahead, because there is so much, and, and we could literally talk for the entire podcast about the history of it, what we have now is a kind of very complicated situation where we have multiple different factions uh, of people who have a different idea of what sort of a state Yemen could be. And then those different factions also have external backers. So the the Saudi-led coalition is the backer of uh, President Haiti. Um, and then there's uh, the main rebel group, the Houthi rebel group, but then there are lots of other rebel groups as well. And there are allegations that the Houthi rebel group are backed by Iran. And this obviously feeds into the sort of wider situation we have in the Middle East at the moment where Saudi Arabia and Iran are engaged in sort of proxy wars uh, and proxy pseudo wars kind of across the region. Right, OK. So so at the moment, it, as you said, it sort of feeds into the, the, the wider issue of uh, mm. Saudi Arabia and uh, Iran being a, a problem. And surely that's all exacerbated by other current global issues to do with that area, too. Uh, yes, I mean this is this is one of the issues that that, that we have, particularly when we talk about Yemen. It's very hard to get attention for the situation in Yemen because there's so much going on in the region, in particular the war in Syria, which kind of takes up so much of the bandwidth um, for global discussions. It seems there's only a sort of certain amount of capacity people have to discuss uh, conflicts and humanitarian crises in in in, in the region, and, and Syria seems to take up all all of that or a lot of it. And is that that's why it's been called the sort of forgotten war? I think it was Amnesty that called it that, wasn't it? And it just because I it's something that I I feel I don't know anything about because I really don't see it being reported on mm. very often. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right, and I think there's there's a number of reasons for that. I think it's in part, uh, as I say, because of uh, the the war in Syria next door, and I think there's there's two reasons uh, for the war in Syria kind of taking up more of the, 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 the radio waves and the, and, and, and the time in the news and, and, and online. Uh, one is that uh, the, the, the war in Yemen is, 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 is not uh, kind of the, in the same way, sort of it goes bang in the same way that the war in Syria does. So the war in Yemen, most of the deaths, the vast majority, sort of, it's a sort of 50 to 1 ratio, are caused by starvation, famine, disease, or the consequences of the breakdown of the state. And then there's a large number of people, at least 10,000, that's a very conservative estimate of the official figures, who, who've been killed as a direct consequence.
consequence of violence, but most people have died uh, of, of disease and starvation. Whereas you take Syria, and Syria is a quite extraordinary war where there's just, you know, so much of the death, um, almost all of it, in fact, is as a direct consequence of military action. And that's the kind of thing which likes to lead news headlines. So the, the, that, the, the, the war in Yemen, which in a way is more tragic and uh, has been described as the world's worst humanitarian catastrophe, uh, it's not as, uh, to use the sort of horrible phrase, exciting in news terms. And then the other thing, and I think this is really, really interesting, is... Um, here in Britain, we don't like to talk about the war in Yemen because we're baddies, uh, and I do mean that. Um, the most of the um, uh, most most of the of the deaths uh, that have been caused in Yemen are a consequence of the actions of the Saudi-led coalition. This is um, uh, the the words of the uh, United Nations report onto the issue. And the Saudi-led coalition is a coalition which the UK uh, has has on various occasions now it's proud to consider itself an ally of, and it's a coalition which the UK. Supplies both with uh, both with arms sales, but also with with quite significant amounts of diplomatic um, support. So it's it's kind of Russia uh, being the bad guys in Syria is kind of an easy story, whereas Yemen's a less easy story because you sort of think, well, why is this war still going on? Why is it uh, what, why is it not resolving? And the answer is because of external support, and some of external support indirectly, but nevertheless very seriously, comes from the UK. Sure, and that then raises uh, kind of uh, a whole load of things about why we, we're probably not pushing for much with our, mm. the, on the UN Security Council, I'm guessing. If, if the UK actually sort of backed a ceasefire, that would make quite a large difference, would it? Yeah, I mean, so the UK does back a ceasefire, but it just hasn't been particularly effective in pushing for a ceasefire. So uh, the UK, uh, the way the UN Security Council works is there's for um, every issue, there's uh, what's known as a pen holder, which is an informal system. But informally, it means that on Yemen, the UK is meant to push for resolution. It's meant to write the first draft of resolution. And they really haven't tried very hard to get resolution through the Security Council um, regarding the, uh, the, the, the war in, in Yemen. And the one time where they did push strongly for a resolution, the resolution was worded in such a way that almost guaranteed it wouldn't be uh, successful. So it was highly critical of Iran um, and not at all critical of Saudi Arabia. Now, first of all, that's, that's somewhat disproportionate because, um, as that report I, I, I mentioned earlier said, most of the... Um, uh, uh, casualties in the war as a consequence of the actions of the Saudi-led coalition, whereas what support Iran offers to, to the rebels is much more a question that's under dispute, the scale of that support. Uh, secondly, if you're, if you're naming uh, Iran, which is an ally of Russia, in that way, there is absolutely no way it's getting through the Security Council. And the UK knows this, and the UK, in a sense, pushed a resolution. There was no chance of, of getting through. So what's really, really needed is a neutral terms resolution, which doesn't point fingers and just simply says to all sides, the main thing now, we can sort the politics later, the main thing now is to get the bombs to stop falling. Uh, and this phrase, uh, peace talks without preconditions, that you you might have heard used, that's, that's what's really required, is for, is for all the sides to sit down without preconditions and just sort of hash out what 
first of all a truce and then a peace process could look like. And that just unfortunately, that's not the sort of language you've seen coming out of the UK. That's the sort of language you've seen coming out of countries like Sweden and the Netherlands, who are uh, currently on the UN Security Council. They're one of the rotating members, and they um, have been much more constructive. Uh, the UK has been uh, half-hearted, frankly, and where it has pushed, it, 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 it hasn't gone for this, this language, which has a hope of success. Uh, it hasn't talked about peace without preconditions, and it has tended to point fingers, particularly uh, point fingers in a partial way. And is that, I mean, you know, without meaning to sound uh, too cynical, but over the last questions I've just asked you, you've said that the UK sell Saudi Arabia quite a lot of arms and deal with it quite a lot, uh, and now they're not quite pushing for, uh, you know, the, the, the full resolution in the right way. Those things must obviously be linked. I mean, I think there's a number of things. I think the UK sees Saudi Arabia as a key diplomatic and strategic ally in the region. It has this this uh, wide-ranging uh, plan for economic engagement with Saudi Arabia, which it sees as making an enormous amount of money for both the UK and Saudi Arabia. And arms is an enormous part of that. Um, and, 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 you know, Saudi Arabia, and not just Saudi Arabia, actually. I think there's, uh, you know, there are so many reasons to get very um, upset about uh, arms sales to Saudi Arabia. But actually, when we talk about Yemen, uh, what's uh, the, the the parties to the conflict? Um, several of them are funded by, uh, well, not funded, I should say, but several of them are using arms which which were um, sold to them by the UK. Uh, the United Arab Emirates um, is also part of that coalition. It's currently the United Arab Emirates that's leading the kind of charge on this uh, this port city of Hodeidah. Um, and, um, and, and yes, so it's not just Saudi Arabia, but it's a number of countries um, who are sort of some of the main clients um, of the UK arms industry. And is, is, am I right in thinking that the UK also supplied quite a lot of aid to Yemen, which feels... Yeah, so doesn't that feel counterintuitive compared to if they're not pushing the resolution but they're supplying a lot of aid? It sort of feels like they could push the resolution and, and therefore in the end give less aid because... It would be more helpful. It feels, it feels counterintuitive to me to be doing those things. I mean, absolutely. I think prevention is always so much cheaper than cure. And um, I think if you ask the Yemenis, they'd rather not have the bombs or the aid than have both the bombs and the aid. Uh, and certainly the UK at the moment is, is very much kind of uh, engaged in a strategy where they sell the weapons and then also provide the sort of kit to clean up afterwards. Um, and, yeah, absolutely. I think I think that, that, that there's there's enormous immediate humanitarian need in Yemen. There is a humanitarian crisis. There's a funding requirement to Yemen that's only half met. Uh, but that funding requirement would be so much lower if the war was less intense or if there, if there was if, if there was a, a truce or ideally a, a lasting peace. And those things aren't going to be made possible while you have the Saudi-led coalition going hammer and tongs for a military solution to the conflict, which, to go back to you know the very first question you asked me, um, this is a, a very complicated civil war. Um, it doesn't have a military solution. There isn't such thing as, 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 as this ending happily with the Saudi-led coalition winning. Uh, Yemen has so many different armed groups with so many different agendas. Uh, that's not what winning looks like. Winning looks like some sort of a negotiated process towards a, a lasting settlement for Yemen. So this, this doesn't even work on the kind of very blunt logic that the Saudi-led coalition employees.
And what is what is the aid that's currently needed in Yemen? Is it so? You said a large percentage of people are dying due to famine. So yeah. I'm guessing it's a lot of a lot of food that needs to be supplied. And what are the main issues in getting? Because I know there's been sort of blockades and issues yeah. with getting aid there. What are those? Yeah, so it's it's food and clean drinking water. The other big problem in Yemen is cholera, uh, which is caused by just a, a failure to 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 have uh, reliable supplies of clean drinking water. So there's there's there not being enough aid, and there's the aid not getting in. There not being enough aid is about the fact that there's an estimate that we need for the next year about three billion dollars worth of aid, and countries have only pledged one point six billion. Uh, it not getting there is largely about the fact that one of the the most damaging things the Saudi-led coalition is doing is it's blockading certain areas. Uh, the Saudi-led coalition has now adopted a humanitarian plan, and the idea was that this humanitarian plan was supposed to be an end to the blockade. That's not really the case. What it is is it's a sort of partial application of blockades in certain areas, which means that the groups that they're not supporting, the groups they don't want to win, are effectively being, being blockaded from having any meaningful access to aid. Um, there's also now the, this big problem. I mean, it's been a problem for years and years and years that so much of the aid that was to go to the rebel areas to the north of Yemen where the, the most of the need is uh, had to go through this one port of, 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 of Hodiha. Um, I'm, I'm so sorry, by the way, for any Yemenis listening if I'm mispronouncing these. Um, but it all had to go through this one port um, and uh, there were problems there with uh, the, the, the port being blockaded. There were problems there with the size of the port not being big enough to, uh, to accept uh, the quantity of aid that needs to go through and the problems with the cranes that were needed to unload the ships uh, being impounded, uh, and, and 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 so they weren't able to be set up to to to, to disembark the aid. Now you've got an even bigger problem, which is the Saudi-led coalition, and in this sense, actually, it's the United Arab Emirates-led part of the coalition. Uh, is attacking the port itself, and it's it's driving towards uh, the centre of town. It's already captured the airport in the south of the town, and it's turning the port, uh, which isn't just a port; it's a city with a population of over half a million people, into a war zone itself. So the the only way for aid to get in is now itself caught up in the conflict. Wow, that's really depressing. Um, I mean, uh, what, what is... Yeah, I mean, you, obviously the ideal yeah. uh, solution to this would be a, a truce or a ceasefire, as you mentioned before, but what... Yeah realistically needs to happen what's the kind of next step towards that and what's the best way for people to raise awareness and kind of campaign for more UK intervention where do, where do we go from here because it sounds really bleak at the moment it is I think um, the, the, the good news is that, that, that actually the UK you know, there, there are many situations, and working with a charity that works in the United Nations, we're so often confronted with kind of helplessness, uh, and and the kind of just sort of sense of you know what what can we do? This is too big, and it's too uh, it's it's too difficult, and in a sense, can it can it really be stopped? Um, and actually, uh, what's really frustrating about the situation in Yemen, but is good news, is that this is something that the UK really has quite a lot of power uh, to do something about. In particular, you know, the relationship between the United Kingdom and, and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is, is very much a two-way... Well, it could be very much a two-way street. The UK could absolutely play hardball with the Saudis, and they're just not. For political reasons at the moment, it's currently a one-way street. So that's what needs to change. Uh, I would suggest, and if you visit our website, and I think you're going to be so kind as to circulate the links, you'll see we've set up a campaign page to enable people to do this. Um, 
harass your MPs, write to them, even better, go and see them in person, um, and talk about the fact that this is a UK problem. This is about Britain's role in the conflict and Britain's leadership and lack of it. Um, and, and I think that could, you know, a, a real change in Britain's posture could have a huge knock-on effect. In terms of what needs to happen, the... Um, Secretary General of the United Nations has appointed a special envoy. Uh, special envoy is working um, round the clock to try and get a truce and to, and to try and get a, a meaningful peace process. Um, the problem he faces is that currently the Saudi-led coalition thinks this war is winnable. And as long as they think this war is winnable, they're not interested in peace because they kind of think, you know, one more big heave and this is done. Uh, and that just isn't the case. That's just a really terrible reading of the situation. And, and even if it were true, it would come as such a terrible humanitarian cost, particularly in terms of, of deaths in this port city. Uh, and so I think the message needs to come from Britain and needs to come far more strongly than it has done thus far. This war is not winnable, and the UK should not be a supporter, um, be it diplomatic or, or, or as a trading partner, um, of the Saudi-led coalition. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we'll be back with Fred in a minute, but first... Last week, Parliament overwhelmingly voted to expand Heathrow Airport. And you're probably thinking, cool, just add a few E's and O's and it becomes Heathrow! Job done. 
but actually the vote was just to go ahead with plans for an extra runway for the West London Airport, much to the disappointment of local residents who, well, like living in their homes and don't want to be turfed out so their abodes can be flattened and made into parking places for planes. Thing is, this isn't the first vote for this, as it was originally brought to Parliament in 2007 by the then Labour government. And it was opposed by the Conservatives, the Lib Dems, the then Mayor of London, now Foreign Secretary and Beef Scarecrow Boris Johnson, and lots of environmental and local pressure groups. And then, after concerns about air pollution, noise pollution, destruction of homes, some activists from Plain Stupid climbing the Houses of Parliament and one throwing green custard over the then Business Secretary because that was back when protests were fun, activists won a High Court battle in March 2010 when Lord Justice Carnworth ruled that the government would have to look at it again with a review of all the relevant policy issues, including the impact of climate change policy. So, it was cancelled later that year by the Coalition Government in one of the few good things they did. I mean, it's likely Nick Clegg probably swapped that happening for, I don't know, his firstborn or something. But for five years, the Heathrow expansion plan lurked, completely unlike a plane, and then in 2015, the Airport Commission said it was the best option for expansion, even though there are loads of regional airports in desperate need of it. I mean, especially Manchester Airport. It has four million passengers a year that have to fly from there to London airports just to get a connecting long-haul flight, so it makes no sense you wouldn't give it an extra runway. But here we are, a new plan and a new vote in 2018, and the Commons voted by a majority of 296 to increase the amount of flights by 250 and add an extra 52 million passengers a year. Assuming the Open Skies plan is sorted after Brexit, obviously, otherwise we'll just have a whacking great big new skate park. So why did it go through this time? Well, it's because it's a shiny new plan. And the Transport Secretary and Caliban from the X-Men, Chris Grayling, has said the airport will be expanded within the law and within our legally binding climate change targets and the Paris Accord. And we can all trust Chris Grayling, right? I mean, look at what he's done for trains and for prisons and for benefits and, uh, 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 oh, Chris, oh, Chris. And here's the thing with this shiny new plan. On the same day that the shiny new plan was released, a whole load of opposition to the plan was released also by the government. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? The government themselves contradicted their own policy statement by releasing a report commissioned by the Department of Transport and conducted by independent experts. And they'll say, you'll never guess what, they say that there is a high risk that the third runway won't be compliant with air quality values. Now, the airport can't actually go ahead unless it can be done within these current air quality laws, so it has to be within EU limits of toxic pollutant nitrogen dioxide, which apparently we're already in breach of and have been for years. Yeah, take that, EU. We're sick of your controlling attempts to make us breathe nice air. Fuck you guys. We're in charge of our own emphysema. Take that control! Similarly, the government's independent climate advisers also said that carbon emissions from the aviation industry mustn't rise, as targets are to cut emissions 80% by 2050. The government's own figures say a new runway would increase CO2 output by 4.9 million tonnes by 2030. And look, now I can see what you're thinking. You're thinking, where's well, a current CO2 shortage, meaning there's not enough beer. Can't we just hire some zero hours, I don't know, delivery drivers to whiz around behind planes collecting all that CO2 in jars so we can just fly fuckloads more and get way drunk? Now, I can see what you're doing. But no, that isn't how science works. In the government's plans, they suggest that they will reach the targets because emissions would fall from other airports as Heathrow took up more journeys. But to reduce by 80% by 2050, while you've got an extra 250,000 flights a year, you're going to have to get rid of all cars and probably cork up a few thousand cow bums, just to be sure at the very least. Campaign group Fellow Travellers has said that to really hit the targets, domestic flights are going to have to stop pretty much entirely, which is super shitty news for Mancunians wanting long-haul flights. 
The Department of Transport have actually gone back on their pledge to reduce road traffic, where they originally said half of all airport users would be getting public transport to the new Heathrow expansion. And now they've said that that's no longer a requirement of the plan due to unintended consequences, which I reckon is just a nicer way of saying, do you actually see us improving public transport anytime soon with this utter fuckwit Chris Grayling in charge? I mean, seriously, you'll be more likely to see people arriving on replacement donkey. And then outside of the environmental issues and whether you want to like breathing or not, the cost of upgrading transport links for the Heathrow expansion will be £5 billion according to the Airport Commission, although according to Transport for London, it's going to be £18 billion. And that's for the roads and all the tubes and everything else. And Heathrow say that they're going to pay £1 billion of that, but where the hell is the rest coming from? Plus the 783 homes that need to be demolished, compensated and rehoused, so where are they going to pay from that? I mean, oh, hang on, what's, oh, what's that? Oh, what's that? What, what are you waving at me? What, oh, is that... A Brexit dividend gift voucher? Ah, oh, phew. Don't worry, guys. We're going to be fine. We are going to be fine. And without those stinky EU laws, we don't have to worry about the air pollution either. Smog it up. We are nailing it. So who knows if this will actually all go through in the end with all of that against it. A judicial review has been launched by the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, uh, Greenpeace and the boroughs of Wandsworth, Richmond, Hillingdon and Hammersmith and Fulham. So once again, it could get blocked in court and end up never taking off. Do you get it? Never taking off, get it? All right, see, like planes. But if it does take off, do you get it? Um, the plus side for local residents is that recent scientific studies show that actually smarter engines and better flight paths have cut noise pollution from airplanes by up to seven decibels. So that is pretty great news right there I mean just imagine as you're standing in your smog filled garden waving at the sky that you can't see at least you'll be able to hear each other coughing every cloud day every weird smoggy cloud and now back to Fred I just want to ask you some other questions that are not uh, Yemen related. Obviously, the, the US has just pulled out of the UN Human Rights Council. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of issues going on in the US now with their recent criminalisation of asylum seekers, uh, amongst yeah. others. Is this, uh, along with other global signs, is this a further step to kind of towards, um, towards a regression in, in global human rights? So is this something that you're quite worried about at the UNA UK? Yeah, it really is. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it, the, the scale of the risk is, is really quite extraordinary. Uh, I'd add a few other things to that list. I mean, at the moment, there's a really worrying discussion around UN peacekeeping in New York, where America is asking for cuts, and Russia and China are saying, brilliant, let's cut human rights then. Um, and then you've got uh, the situation in the EU with the uh, migration um, and, and refugee crisis in the Mediterranean, where effectively allowing people to drown. Um, and and you've got Hungary and Italy effectively pushing for the EU to renege on its its commitments to um, you know, not preventing people from drowning at sea. Um, I think it's it's really really worrying. I think it's it's linked to what's being called the the rising global populism. I think there's problems there. I think the, the problem is people see human rights at the moment as getting in their way, and that's a phrase that was you know, used in a recent election campaign. Um, and they don't understand that actually what human rights are is a protection for the weak against the strong. Uh, so there's this real sense in these kind of populist strong men around the world have been championing this, that human rights is something that's, that's interferingly imposed on countries by a global elite. Uh, 
Um, and actually, what we need to get people to understand is that human rights is actually a tool for the people to protect themselves from their governments. So human rights should be a populist thing. Human rights should be about, about you know, giving the people the strength to stand up to, to their oppressors. But it's somehow being, being twisted, uh, you know, 180 degrees and made into this idea that human rights is the bogeyman, whereas actually human rights is what keeps the bogeyman at bay. I mean, it's always sort of baffled me that in the name alone, human rights, surely that's the best advertisement for what it is, <laughs> you know, that we're all humans, we all want our rights. It, it sort of seems strange to me that, that can be twisted, uh, a, a, you know, into something that people don't want anymore. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, what I'd like to do is... Um, is, is uh, what's it like is for people to understand that when someone very powerful is telling you that something is bad and dangerous and not in your best interests, maybe what they mean is it's not in their best interests. And I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, who you know who who is against you know the application of the word rights to the word human? I mean, it's as you say, it just seems so so self-evident. And is it like? You know, there's a, there's a number of reasons why this seems to happen. You pointed out the refugee crisis has been uh, something that's definitely t- turned populism uh, or, or given rise to populism in the EU. But also, I was speaking to someone recently about China and China's abuse of human rights, and they were saying about how China becoming such a global power means people aren't challenging Tibetan things anymore because they fear uh, that they'd lose trade with them. So, what's what, what do you feel is the the biggest issue here, or what's the what's doing the the most damage to to human rights? I mean, I think I, 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 I'd actually put it closer to home than that. So I think I think it really comes from the kind of um, the West, if you want to use that term, and it's and it's about the sort of absolution of responsibility here, and it's also about the sort of twisting of the rights agenda here. I think what's there's 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 dangers, but also opportunities with the way that the world is changing. Um, I think the world, as you say, China is rising as a power. The traditional global powers are all, I'd say all, um, waning in importance. And what that's going to lead to, uh, it look, I mean, it's not, you know, gazing these crystal balls sort of quite often you, you get it wrong, but it, it does very much look like we're, we're moving towards a sort of much more multipolar um, world where there aren't single centers of power, there are multiple centers of power. And actually, that's a good thing. I think having a very small number of countries set a global agenda isn't good. Uh, the thing is, right has to not be lost in that discussion. Now, with China, you've seen China go for a sort of 180-degree turn uh, on climate change and from being, like, a real problem uh, when it comes to the environment. Now, actually, China's leading the way on, on, on climate change at the UN, and it's the US that's a real problem. Uh, and, and, and I would hope that as China sort of tries to step into that global leadership role, they uh, start to understand that that global leadership role comes with responsibilities, and many of those responsibilities are about rights. I'd also hope that as we go into a more multipolar world, uh, we sort of democratize rights, and that the result of that is that, that you know, you have um, very, very strong human rights culture in Latin America, a kind of mixed human rights culture in Africa, where you have some of the most powerful and passionate advocates of human rights, but you also have a, a number of a number of tyrants and despots as well. And there's 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 a live debate. I mean, that's where that's where human rights is a really kind of sort of day to day life or death issue. Um, and then and then unfortunately, in in sort of West Asia, you you kind of have all these wars which are making it so much more difficult to have a, a conversation about rights. But I think I think the the, 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 the democratization of the sense of power in the world, I would hope would be good for rights, not bad.
So there could there could be some hope. There could be some hope with that. There could be some hope. I think. That, I, think, I, think <laughs> I think. I think the problem. The problem with human rights is I think the long term trajectory is good, but the, the, it's about the people who get hurt in the meantime. And I think that's what rights are for: is to protect against individuals from being trampled underfoot. And uh, you know, we're 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 witnessing this sort of you know epochal changes in in, 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 in in the kind of world that we're living in uh, but individuals are kind of getting getting crushed by the, by the system and that's what human rights are for is to prevent that from happening so you know maybe a hundred years from now things will be fine but we have to get through the next hundred years and I think human rights is the best way to to make sure that that's as painless as it as it can be uh, I wanted to ask about your, some of your other campaigns, because obviously we sure. discussed your um, campaign for Yemen. Um, you've got two other major campaigns at the moment, which are the Mission Justice one and, uh, uh, on a slightly different note, the campaign for the best High Commissioner for Human Rights. Um, could you tell me a bit about both of those? And I understand that... Um, should we take Mission Justice first? That's probably the best way to do it, isn't it? What, what's that campaign about? Sure, absolutely. So Mission Justice is about sexual exploitation and abuse in UN peacekeeping, um, and really actually about sexual violence. Um, so the uh, issue of sex, um, UN peacekeeping uh, is something that UNA UK is incredibly proud to support. Uh, it uh, is one of the most effective tools that our global system has to prevent atrocities. It's one of the most effective tools our global system has to move uh, countries uh, from, from states of war to states of peace and to make sure that along the way civilians are protected. Um, and, it's, uh, and it's an enormous system which employs over 100,000 troops uh, in, in around 15 countries around the world and spends about $7 billion a year. And um, so, 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 so we're dealing with, dealing with a sort of a massive, complicated system. And within that system, unfortunately, there have been issues where troops uh, have committed acts of sexual violence against the local population. Uh, and that really undermines uh, peacekeeping. It's, it's terrible for the victims of those crimes. It also uh, has, uh, you know, has, has a real risk of bringing the entire system crashing down, because if you can't trust peacekeepers, if peacekeepers aren't going to be the allies of the local population, and if there's no trust between local communities and peacekeeping, then, then what is peacekeeping for? So we think this is a really kind of existential issue for peacekeeping which needs to be solved. Um, there have been attempts to solve this problem for around 20 years, and one of the things we've been doing, and it, and it is getting better, I think we should, we should give the UN credit for the, the reforms that they have undertaken and which, which are having an effect. But we've been kind of looking at this sort of issue kind of systematically and structurally and, and our worry is that um, uh, things that the UN is doing around training, around awareness raising, around uh, support for victims are so, so, so important but they're not going to work while there's this fundamental issue of impunity at the heart of peacekeeping. So peacekeeping I'm not going to talk about this for too long but it operates under very sort of complicated legal structure and the consequence of that is there are too many troops who think they have immunity and think they can get away with crime and unfortunately whenever you have large groups of soldiers who believe they have immunity you do get crimes of a sexual nature and so Mission Justice is a campaign about closing legal loopholes and making sure that all peacekeepers that no peacekeepers above the law all peacekeepers know that if they commit crimes of a sexual nature it is very very likely that they will be prosecuted for those crimes and it's about making sure that uh, we're proactive um, and we make sure that we don't deploy peacekeepers into areas where they're going to be coming into contact with vulnerable people unless it is demonstrated that they can be held to a criminal standard of justice. Uh, and the last thing I'd say is it's about that... Um, 
about that sense that what we're talking about here with uh, sexual violence is criminal acts and it needs a criminal justice-based response. So unfortunately, and this is just the nature of the UN as an employer, uh, the UN has been approaching this as an employer and it has been applying remedies which are to do with human resources processes and are to do with um, misconduct and if you commit misconduct you'll get fired. Uh, and what we're doing is we're placing, and you have to work through member states themselves, the, the nations of the United Nations for this, is saying that's true, but what's also true is when you commit crimes, it's not just a matter of getting fired. You, you, you could go to jail. This is, this is, crimes are going to be met with a criminal justice-based response. Sure, that sounds yeah. Very, so it's a, kind of, yeah, yeah, putting in a as you say, putting in a kind of uh, putting in a law and justice element rather than mm -hmm. just uh, an employment exactly. element. And it's very interesting as well because obviously we saw last year and uh, we won't go into that, but you know, the charities being highlighted for kind of um, sexual harassment issues in areas where people were in need. And uh, but but I mean, I suppose in the same with the UN, we assume, I, I assume that it's it's a handful of people rather than is is this a widespread problem or is this a you know a handful of cases that have that you, that you need to stem now so that it doesn't happen again? I always find it hard to answer that question because um, I think the issue with all sexual crimes, and we saw this so clearly with the Me Too movement, is the ones we know about are always the tip of the iceberg. Um, and also the, the nature of taboo, the nature of shame, um, the nature of um, the way we don't uh, have... Uh, the, 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 the sexual predators prey on, on people who are, who are vulnerable because they don't really have access to you know, the likes of us and don't really have the ability to tell their side of the story it means we always underestimate. So I'm, I'm always very reluctant to say, oh, it's a small handful, because it, I'd, be, I'd be pretending I knew when I didn't know. And I think the sense is we have no idea. What I would say is that the UN is no different from any other large organization. Um, and that all large organizations have to come to terms with the fact that if they give their employees immunity and if they place their employees in positions where they're in contact with uh, people where there's a differential of power between them and people, then then, then this stuff is, is going to happen. I mean, the sort of tragedy of humanity is we're, we, we, we always seem to abuse power when we, when we have it. So, so, so what I, and, and, then, and then with the UN, and this is where Mission Justice steps in, you have these added complications of these jurisdictional issues caused by the fact that it's an international organization, but it's an organization that has no ability to, uh, has no ability of its own to uh, sanction people criminally. It sort of borrows jurisdiction from other nations. It doesn't have any of its own, certainly not on this issue. Sure. So that then makes it yeah, yeah. much harder to kind of yeah. cut down these things. Exactly. Um, and then your other campaign, uh, which is on a, a sort of a, quite a different issue, but you're currently searching for the best high commissioner for human rights. Um, can you tell That's me? That's right. Yeah, you're asking people's help with that? Um, we are, yeah. yeah. So, or, or, to be more precise, I suppose the UN's asking people's help, but we're we're asking more loudly. Um, so, the the issue is, and this this comes back to what we were talking about earlier, whereas I do think we have a bit of crisis for human rights at the moment, and I do think the UN, uh, with its sort of you know unique global role, can be can be a really powerful part of the solution. Now, the the High Commission for Human Rights is the the heart and the centre of the UN's human rights system. Uh, that person is uh, so important to the way that human rights system works. Uh, 
um, and and that and that person needs to be a sort of powerful and and, and outspoken advocate for human rights, uh, an effective diplomat, and needs to um, manage the UN's human rights system, which is starved of money and under pressure like never before. So you kind of need a uh, a super person for this. Um, now, what's happening is that the Secretary General has done some things which we really like, including has put out a call uh, to anybody, literally anybody, can nominate uh, someone to be the next High Commissioner for Human Rights. And if you look on their website, but it's actually easier to find it on our website, you can find the email address in which you can submit your nominations. Uh, they do say, you know, ask the person first. Um, and, and, and also what this is really about is making sure that, 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 that human rights defenders and human rights advocates all over the world can get involved in the process. Uh, what, what, what we're less keen on is just how late he's left this decision. So the closing date for applications is July 11th, uh, and then they're going to need to vet the, uh, the candidates, shortlist them, interview them, vet them again, uh, select one. The General Assembly needs to approve it. They're going to need to serve out any seven notice they have, and they're then going to need to prep themselves so it's one of the hardest jobs in the world, and they start work on the 1st of September. Uh, so it's really like the the heat that you know the hunt is on because there's so little to time to find what really has to be sort of one of the most uh, effective and, and powerful members um, of, of of the United Nations. So so we're kind of putting all our effort into that for the next couple of weeks. If you look at our website, you can see how you can get involved. I'm afraid part of it at the moment is we really do need money, so any donation is hugely welcome. The other thing we're doing is we're talking about what the role entails, what kinds of uh, people we think would make good candidates, um, what we'd like to see happen in terms of the process. We think the process could be hugely improved, um, and we have suggestions on that front. Uh, this is building on previous work we've done on uh, the selection of the Secretary General himself, um, and we're, we're, we'll, be pushing, uh, we'll, we'll be pushing for all those things over the next couple of weeks. Sure, and I mean, just, uh, you know, you're looking for the best High Commissioner. What kind of qualifications do you want the person to Because I'm assuming you can't just, you know, while you're asking people to nominate anyone, they can't just kind of go, oh, my next-door neighbour's really lovely. <laughs> is, is there there's something, some, are there certain specific things that you're looking for in what you think would make the best High Commissioner for human rights? So I think what's interesting about this, and part of our campaign touches on this, um, is how poorly defined the role is. There's a UN General Assembly resolution which slightly defines the role, um, and there's a sort of we've put together, um, if you can call it that, a job description, person specification from various uh, precedents that have been set and from from various uh, things that the Secretary General and the General Assembly have said over the years. But it's it's like all the senior posts in the United Nations, and the Secretary General's the most extreme version of this. It's not a particularly well-defined job, and it's kind of up to a High Commissioner to make it of themselves uh, what it is. But what the current High Commissioner of Human Rights has been is a very effectively outspoken advocate for victims. So he, uh, Zaid al-Hussein, has spoken up in situations where others kept quiet. He's been a voice to power, um, and, and I think that, that, that is a, a, a uh, 
uh, something that the next High Commissioner needs to be to is, is kind of fearless in the face of power. And then I think the other half of that equation is, is, is making sure that power has to listen to you. So that's where the kind of diplomatic skills um, uh, come into it. I mean, you look at who's been the former High Commissioner for Human Rights previously. It's people like uh, Mary Robinson, who was president of Ireland, uh, Louise Arbour, who was a judge on the International Criminal Court, Navi Pile, who was, um, well, many things, but one of the things she was was Nelson Mandela's lawyer. Um, you know, I mean, they, they tend to be, and, and what we need is sort of some of the most effective human rights defenders and advocates that, that, that the world has to offer. Sure, that's, uh, yeah, so just, you know, not asking for much. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. I might, no. Yeah, I might nominate Stormzy, that's of, what I'm going for, yeah. Yeah, well, I think, I think, I think, I think, I think the other part of it is, is, is just, you know, it's, it, this is a person who, who, you know, represents the rights of humans. Uh, so, you know, who is it for us to say what sort of a person it, it, it should be? And I think that's why it's so great that the Secretary General has said anyone can nominate, because I think anyone should be able to nominate, because, you know, human rights come in all forms and human rights defenders come in all forms. I will say that the process is the Secretary General nominates them, and then the UN General Assembly has to approve them by a two-thirds vote. So you need to convince the Secretary General that you're good enough, and then you need to make sure that at least 66% of countries are willing to vote for you. So not having too many enemies or having lots of friends amongst global leaders is important. And then being what the Secretary General considers to be the right choice is important. Wow, right. Cool. We'll get yeah. your thinking caps on, listeners. That's, um, that's really exciting <laughs> when people get to, uh, get to uh, you know, put people forward for that, I think. Um, the, yeah. the last question I want to ask you is just something that I ask every single interview on here, just with the hope that people can then go out and get further reading or info. Um, apart from yourself and UNA UK, what other organisations, journalists, campaigners would you recommend that listeners check out or read about for um, the issue of human rights uh, around the world, really? Sure. So, I mean, uh, there's kind of a sort of Yemen slant to my list, um, because uh, obviously that's how we started this discussion. I think the Office of the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, this is a UN agency. Uh, it doesn't, it, it coordinates others to give aid. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily give out much aid itself, but, but billions, and I do mean billions of dollars of aid, flow through it from donors to those in need. They, their job is to deal with humanitarian crises and emergencies. They're the ones that have said that Yemen is the most significant humanitarian crisis they face. Uh, their Yemen website uh, is the best place to go for the sort of up-to-date details and the sort of last situation reports on what's going on in Yemen. Uh, I'd recommend a brilliant NGO called Security Council Report. They've got a, a very good website and a Twitter account um, uh, for finding out what's going on in the UN Security Council and sort of finding out more about who did what at the Security Council and what the UK didn't do. Uh, I'd go to Security Council report. Uh, and then on the arms sales issues and the arms trade in the UK, Control Arms, which is an organization that we we, we, we work very closely with, uh, they're absolutely brilliant. Um, the, my, my colleague, uh, Ben Donaldson, who leads on this, uh, recommended a conflict researcher called Mike Lewis, who has a website and has done a lot of work, apparently, on uh, the relationship between UK and Saudi Arabia. Um, then there's a, um, a number of other kind of organizations we work with. Um, so uh, we do quite a lot of work on a responsibility to protect. Uh, so I'd mentioned a couple of NGOs, Protection Approaches and the European Coalition of Responsibility to Protect. Uh, we also have done some work on feminist foreign policy, and, and I'd recommend people check out the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy, CFFP. Uh, they're brilliant. Um, and then um, there's a number of kind of UN watchers 
that, that, that are definitely very good to sort of find out more about what's going on in the UN and kind of have a, uh, a human, uh, you know, follow human rights issues quite closely. So Past Blue is a brilliant blog uh, based in New York. Uh, there's uh, some journalists called Richard Gowan and Colin Lynch, uh, and there's a column at the New York Times called The Interpreter, and they, they, they follow UN issues very, very closely. Thank you to Fred for having time to chat with me. UNA UK can be found at una.org.uk and their Yemen Can't Wait campaign can be found on that site on their Get Involved page. Um, their Mission Justice campaign is on their What We Do page and their campaign to find the best new High Commissioner for Human Rights can be found on the website's front page. Uh, you can also donate to them via the Support Us tab. Um, please do that. They're desperately in need of funds. Um, UNA UK can also be found on Twitter at UNA UK and the same on Facebook. And if you want to follow Fred's own account, he's on Twitter at Carver UNA. I should also add that if you're a listener from outside the UK, you may well have your very own uh, UNA group for your country as well. Um, the UNA USA one is very easy to find at unausa.org. Um, India have ifuna.org and Canada have unac.org and you should be able to find yours with an easy Google. Ah, oh, the magic of the future. Now, next week, it's either going to be about China or Mexico, depending on who I get to speak to when. Uh, and then after that, who the hell knows? And that's why, as always, your precious input is much sought after. Have you got someone you think I should chat to? Or a campaign issue or political query you think I should find someone to talk to about? Then let me know. Uh, maybe you even know someone uh, or an area that I can do an interview about that provides some hope at all. <laughs> of course not. What are the chances? But um, look, if you've got any ideas, please do drop me a line at Purple Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk at gmail.com or you could send me a mysterious note in a bunch of flowers hoping I'll get your message and be so flattered by the bouquet I immediately chase up your request or more likely my violent hay fever will kick in and then I'll smash the flowers into the street while decrying pollen and then your message will eventually get eaten by our local shitty fox so as always it's just oh, it's just easier to email isn't it <laughs> And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Thank you for engaging your sound wells with this hour of talk noise. And if you do enjoy the show, then please do give it a review on the iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, CastBox, or just that tin can that you have connected to a piece of string that's linked to a can in my flat. If you can donate to the Patreon, 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 or Ko-fi sites, please do. And if you can't, then please just recommend the show to everyone you know and perhaps anyone you don't know. I mean, why not just slide into their DMs with a cheeky recommendation and then slide out again before it gets creepy and then drive yourself off as you're obviously far too slippy with all that sliding. I mean, it is very hot. I don't blame you. Big tars to uh, Acast for picking us for their extremely large team and to my brother, the last sceptic, for all the bips, bops, bleeps and bloops. Um, his new album Under the Patio is out now. Do go check it out. This will be back next week when I'll be commenting on how Michael Gove has been hospitalised after breaking his hand trying to punch his way out of a wet paper bag. Bye! This week's show is brought to you by Gove's Hench Powder. Do you want to be as strong and as bulky as Michael Gove? Do you sometimes wish that your muscles would do that thing where you tense them, but they somehow roll off your arm and fall underneath it? Then you need Gove's Hench Powder, made from 99% water because otherwise you'll get bloated. One sip of this and you'll be ready to shoo away a fly or carry an entire folder before needing to lie down for a while and recover. Gove's Hench Powder, for when you really need to show everyone just who's boss and let them know it's really definitely not not you.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.